Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. morning we're going to be in Ephesians 4 and the last time we looked at the title was unrealized treasure and today we're gonna kind of look at doctrine but really execution of that doctrine right the the title for today's message is from talking to walking in unity the Apostle Paul really took the first half of the letter I mean again chapter delineations came later but the first three chapters is telling us about the love of God and the blessings of God and our salvation is a free gift, all those awesome things, these next few chapters are going to be challenging for us because now we need to do something with it. God is always the initiator, you know, the initiator of his love, of the free gift of salvation, of his blessings to us, and we're the responders. So we're going to be called to look at what we've discussed or what he's uh, espoused to the Ephesian Christians and us and act on that, act on those blessings and really, God wants us to walk in unity. Kind of reminds me of when I was a kid. My parents were divorced young, and it was just me and my sister. And it was very stressful. We would move around a lot. She, for all intents and purposes, was a single mom. And, uh, you know, it was, it was my sister and I would argue and, and that kind of stuff and bicker like siblings do. And when my mother's birthday or... Mother's Day came around, you know, we wanted to make a card for her, we wanted to buy her a bottle of perfume, and we would ask her, what do you want? She says, I just want you kids to get along, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Uh, moms, can we hear for the moms? I, I want you to just obey me. Well, it's kind of funny because when we think about God, we know all the things he's done for us, and we can be like that. We could want to pray a long emotional prayer and do something for God, but a lot of times, God just wants us to get along. And it's kind of funny. Well, get along with them? Well, do you have a second best option? <laughs> you know? so, but this is what, what he wants for us. He wants us to walk in unity. We're going to look at that. And we're really going to look into, take this into four parts. And really only 11 verses because there's a lot in here. So let's jump in. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, remember the Apostle Paul writing from prison, beseech you or exhort you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the first part is exhortation to unity. I therefore beseech you, he says. In other words, because of what he said previously, right? Chapter 3, God's infinite wisdom played out in his love for us, played out in the form of Jesus Christ on the cross dying for our sin, this treasure that we need to realize. Once we realize this, 
the Apostle Paul beseeches us or exhorts us to walk worthy of the calling. In other words, two words, do or obey. Now, especially if we're trying to win somebody to Christ, unbelievers are watching. And sometimes their characterizations is, oh, Christians talk a lot. But they don't do. They don't play it out. And when we do actually play out our faith and it's, we're filled with the Spirit, then they are attracted to the faith. So we have to look at that. And certainly we shouldn't be walking the way we walked before we were believers. He says, walk worthy of the calling. See, it's a mathematical equation. Some people add Jesus to their life when really they should be using Jesus to subtract a lot of negativity from their old life. We're doing the wrong equation. If we add Jesus, we're just polytheists. Well, I'll just continue on the way I was and add Jesus as if he was a little figurine that we could put in our figurine cabinet. But no, when we call the Lord into our life, he's got to do some subtraction. And we have to allow him to do that. God has entrusted us with a treasure, a priceless gift of eternal life. And he has made us ambassadors from his heaven, from his world to this world. We're not, we're not earth dwellers anymore. We have an eternity that's waiting for us. We're just passing through. Our life is but a vapor. God wants his glory to be shown through the church so that people who are in bondage to themselves and sin and this world are attracted. We should be walking billboards. And he goes into how it's done with these characteristics, these three. Because, you know, people have the wrong, ex ex the, the wrong idea sometimes of Christianity. So what are you saying, Pastor Joe? I should put on a show and talk Christianese. Well, no, that's not what he's asking us to do. Be yourself, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? And it'll be obvious to others. It won't look like a show. There's a lot of weirdness in Christianity, and, and the Apostle Paul is, is pretty much telling us how we should go through this and how we should live this. So he says with three times. With, number one, lowliness or humility of mind. There's an expression about humility. Once you think you've attained it, you've immediately lost it. Right? Think about that for a minute. It doesn't mean that we... We knock on ourselves, I'm such a bad person, and in front of a bunch of people, oh, I can't believe, you know. It's, it's really not even thinking of ourselves. Sometimes people go from being prideful and arrogant to a victim. And the, the, what the common denominator is, they're always talking about themselves. Basically, he's saying it's less of ourselves and more of others, right? Watch that play out. So lowliness, humility of mind, too. Gentleness or meekness. I know a man who's tall and broad, and uh, he actually helped me carry a boulder this big. Actually, I didn't do much of anything. He just kind of picked it up, put it on the back of the truck, and the tires went down. I've never seen a man so incredibly naturally strong. This man is very, he's very soft-spoken, and he's a very gentle man. Now, I wouldn't want to tick him off, don't get me wrong. But it's this power that's under control, gentleness, meekness. See, Christ had, with his hand, he had power over the demons. You know, get out. You know, he had power over the seas. He had power to raise the dead. Lazarus, come forth. But with that same hand, he was gentle to the lame and the blind and the downtrodden, the way he touched them, the way he picked up children. It's power under control. Lord, exercise that. Three, long-suffering or forbearance to bear injuries patiently. You know, sometimes just to let it roll off you and not immediately lash out. Four, to bear with one another in love. 
Does everybody like straight talk here? <laughs> I like to go into my Greek lexicon and look up these words, and it's funny because a lot of these things were written many years ago, and then this, this phrase comes out in our vernacular, and it just makes me laugh. When I looked at bearing with one another, I'm looking at this official Greek lexicon, and one of the things it says is to put up with, <laughs> right? As Christians, sometimes we've got to put up with stuff, don't we? Especially if we're trying to win somebody to Christ. We may have to take it. I tell you, I don't get offended when I'm witnessing to somebody and they assault me and they assault God, you know, assail our character because I just smile and I know that they're hurting and they're lashing out. And I really want to win them to Christ. And I don't want an argument to ensue and to block that witnessing. In the church, we're supposed to be different. This is, this is said to us. The fifth point, endeavoring to keep unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, you bring any group of people together, there's going to be infighting, right? But we really, as a church, need to bear with one another. We need to be patient with one another. You know, God wants us to be unified, like what I said in my opening, right? The bond of peace can only come from the Prince of Peace, and even unbelievers can tell who has it and who doesn't. And it's attractive to them. Listen, the UN all the time make peace treaties. They've been doing this for decades. And Congress makes laws to keep the peace. But there's always somebody who, or groups or nations that skirt around this. This is something different. As believers, we're held to a higher standard. It's not a law that we're supposed to flout or try to get around. It's something that is, should be endemic to all of us. It should be within us. It should be visceral. Now, let's not get the wrong impression what all this means. Peacemaker, a peacemaker's job is not an easy job. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. You know as well as I do. You've seen it in the Holocaust or civil wars or genocide. When a peacekeeping force comes in, sometimes there's more uh, violence and bloodshed before the peace actually subsides. In a spiritual sense, a lot of people don't know that Jesus, and if you've never heard this before, check me on it, call me on it, Go to Matthew 23. He spoke with the religious leaders. He told them, you brood of vipers. He goes, you guys try to win a proselyte to your religion, and you make them twice the son of hell as you are. Some of you have never heard this before. He said, you guys, to, to the religious leaders, you shut the door to heaven. You don't you get in yourself, and you block other people from getting in. Wow, Jesus said that? Yes, he did. But Jesus was a peacemaker. He had to do this because they were barring unity and they were barring people from actually getting into heaven with their false doctrine and their disunity and their factions you know gandhi was asked and i hear a lot of quotes i don't know maybe he got saved at the end he he was very favorable very inclined towards jesus but he really had a problem with christians it's kind of funny gandhi was asked what is the greatest hindrance to christianity in india he replied christians <laughs> you know Listen, don't misunderstand what it means to be a peacemaker. And even in a church, you can't let bullies run the church. Because then those nice and wounded sheep, they leave. Because they feel, they don't feel like they're welcome. So unity is important, and dividers need to be dealt with. Verse 4, continuing on. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So two, the second part of this is the explanation of unity. What does it look like? Well, it's a bunch of ones, and we'll go through some of these. 
The first one is one body, one body of Christ. Now this is a, almost, again, I'll throw some mathematics and stuff in here. This is not an addition equation, but it's a mathematical equation. One local body times one local body times one local body. I could do this all day long. There's local bodies all over the United States, all over the world. Still equals one. It's one body. The only thing that separates, separates us from the rest of the church is geography. Okay? So one body of Christ. And the second one is one spirit, one Holy Spirit. And I, I've said this before. The Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood person of the Godhead. There's a you really have to read the scripture to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. But Jesus told us in John's gospel that the Holy Spirit, he said, will always testify of me. So if people are doing all kinds of stuff and, and it's not testifying to Jesus, it's probably not of the Spirit. Three, one hope, one true hope in Jesus Christ. That means that even as Americans, we're not to be different when it comes to the scripture than everybody else on the planet. Our hope is not in the stock market. Not in our looks, not in our strength, not in our popularity, not in our education, retirement, 401k. Not that those things are bad, but we have a true hope in Jesus Christ. Now, I looked up that word, and it's interesting because hope has different layers or strata. Hope can mean anticipate to expect. This isn't a hope like, hey, that was a great first date. I hope she calls me. You know, I, I really hope I'm going to sit by the phone. This is, this type of hope is an expectation. We believe in the promises that God has espoused in his word. Four, one Lord, one Lord. The Apostle Paul speaks about those that preach another Jesus, right? Which Jesus are we talking about? Are we talking about the weak Jesus? Are we talking about the Jesus who's only a man and nothing more? Are we talking about Jesus, the spirit brother of Lucifer? Or are we talking about the Jesus of the Bible? Remember, there's only one Lord. We can't be Christians and have all these hodgepodge and eclectic ideas that come in through the wor wor world that confuse us. Instead of the world, we have to find it in the word. There's one Lord. Five, one faith. There's one thing for us to believe in, to have eternal life. Again, you go through pseudo-Christianity and cults, and they, well, how do you get to heaven? Everybody's got a different way to get to heaven. Not according to the scripture. It's to believe in Jesus Christ that he died for our sins and what he did on the cross. So one faith, one baptism, one baptism. I'm going to tell you that there's a, a baptism that's unseen and the baptism that's seen. And the baptism that's seen, okay, helps us understand or is emblematic of the baptism that is unseen. But it's still one. So here we go. The first baptism is spiritual. It's invisible. It happens at conversion. It's authored by God. He immerses us into, a, into the family of God, and he, and he also seals us with the Holy Spirit. What we do here, we're going to actually have another one July 5th, by the way, baptism, what we do is visible. It's in water. It happens after conversion or concurrent with conversion. It's authored by the believer, and it's symbolic of what God has already done. So that should clear up any misunderstanding. Well, one baptism, I've heard a lot of different baptisms. What we do here is just a way of showing the world what God has already done inside. It's the same thing. It's symbolic at this point. Seven, one God and Father of all. You notice that's very interesting that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in these few verses, 
the, each person of the Godhood was separated but spoken of as one. In the, in the Hebrew, Deuteronomy 6, it's echad, which means a unified one, still one. But what's very important is, what God are we talking about? If Jesus' character has been assailed and the Holy Spirit's, well, God, forget about it. Is God, uh, I heard people say, she, referring to God. Is God, uh, you know, Vishnu? Is God Ganesh? Is God Zeus? Is God Apollo? And all these crazy ideas of who God is over the years. You know, there's cults springing up every, every year or two. Well, what's your, you know, when you say, oh, pray to God. All right, who are we talking about? Are we praying to the same person? Right? There's demons who masquerade themselves as gods and do people and, and try to uh, hinder them from salvation. So one, God and the Father of all. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the third part is the ability for unity. Now, when we're born, we have this thing called DNA. And this thing called DNA inside of our cells does an amazing thing. It's the blueprint for the rest of our body. What we look like, how tall we are. Um, believe it or not, a lot of it also has to do with abilities. right? And it, it helps to form the body as cells replicate. So, we are born physically out of our mother's womb with natural ability. Some of us are, like you saw in the FCA video, very talented physically. Some are very bright. Some are blessed with both. However, when we come to Christ and we're born again, Jesus is the master of, of, of parables or, or, or understanding or illusions or types. We're born again. We're born of the Spirit. Right? We repent. We, we come face to face somehow with the living God in some way. And we realize that we're sinners. We repent of our lives and we, you know, we have to, and then we turn to God and we trust him for what he's done. Somebody explains it to us. We read a scripture. In the Middle East, God is coming to, to people through dreams and visions because they outlaw Bibles. He's going to get to people in a good way. He wants, them all, he wants everybody to get to heaven. That's his desire. The Bible is very clear. So when we're born again of the Spirit, we become believers. We're now imparted with additional abilities, but they're spiritual abilities. We call them spiritual gifts. And what they do is they help us to you know, I have a gift, you have a gift, you have a gift. Everybody here has some spiritual gift if you've, or you're born again. And some of you, you just got saved recently, and you, it's up to you to pray about it or find out or ask somebody, what do you think my gifts are? It's pretty fun to actually find out what they are. It's like this treasure that you find. So what happens is the gifts help us to, to be in unity, to unify the church, and also to glorify God. You know, a lot of people are very accomplished before they come to the cross. And then they come to the cross, or, and then they still try to use their accomplishments in the world for ministry. Now, you can to some extent, but to do a much better job, we need to use our spiritual gifts. Right? We have to stop, and, and we can do this. Listen, I, was, um, I, mean, I, I had abilities, and then I came to Christ, and I have to stop leaning on my abilities and lean on, on the Lord and trust in his Holy Spirit. I can tell you, I go through a difficult time before I come up here, because I do. I ask the Lord, just empty me, you know, just fill me, Lord, I want it to be pleasing to you. It's amazing you, how you wrestle with your flesh when you become a believer. You really want God to be glorified. That's our desire when we become Christians, for him to be glorified, to please him. 
So we can use our natural abilities in ministry, but primarily we must use our spiritual gifts because that's why he gave them to us. He didn't just give us, you know, oh, I, I really like you and you're saved and here, have a bunch of stuff. When God blesses us with something, there's something he wants us to do with it. Unify the church, glorify him. Those are the two most important. Verse 8. It says, therefore he, okay, says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But also that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And there's um, a bunch of, there's a list in different parts of the scripture that tell us of these gifts that God has given us. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, I like to put them together. He espouses all these you know, a lot more than what we're reading here, and, and I'm going to talk about that. But it's really exciting to find out what our spiritual gifts are. So the fourth part is that the gifts help us with unity, right? They help us to gel. They help us to coalesce. You know, when, listen, we might be loners in the world, but when we come to Christ, that is something that's also immature. It has to go away. You know, st some still take, they carry their old life into Christianity. Well, I'm a rebel till I die. Well, I'm a loner. Well, I'm a this. Not according to the scripture. That means that we're still in immaturity. God wants us to, to gel with the rest of the body. It's not easy. God asks us to do difficult things. He doesn't ask us to do easy things. Now, before we get into the gifts, what I want to do is talk about the genesis of these gifts that lead to the unity. What does it mean? Christ descended and then he ascended. Well, we know he ascended. He rose from the dead. We know that he eventually ascended into heaven. But what's this thing about descending? We'll check that out. Let me read verses 9 and 10 again. I'm going to say that if you're a new believer or you're not a believer, I expect questions. And please, write them down. Talk to me afterwards. Even for Christians, a lot of Christians haven't really, don't, don't really, haven't really maybe gone into this in any depth. So let me, there's a reason it's put in here. And it's really kind of parenthetical. Verse 9, now this he, Jesus, ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who ascended is also the one who, I'm sorry, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So let's talk about this. Jesus on the cross gave up his spirit, right? His his flesh, his, the human nature that he took on, still hung on the cross. It was buried, but you can't kill God. So Jesus, something happened between the crucifixion and the resurrection. The word for earth, because I have to, when you get into something um, that you know can be, people can talk about or say, well, I'm not sure about that. What does the scripture say? I really go into the detail. So what does it mean that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth? There's two words that I'm familiar with that are used mostly for earth. One in the Greek is ge, and the other one is cosmos. Cosmos usually means a bunch of people, the world, the whole world of people. Okay, Ge means the actual soil, the physical nature of the earth, without any you know, souls or human nature or whatever. It's just this rock that he's kind of thrown in there, and we call it our home. So 
What did Jesus descend into the earth? Matthew 12:40, Jesus says this, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what did Jesus do? Isaiah 61.1. Remember when Jesus in Luke 4 at the synagogue read, basically telling everybody that he was the Messiah? He used Isaiah's prophecy of himself and the things that he would do. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to heal the brokenhearted. Check this out. To pro- proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 42.7. To, the, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out prisoners from the prison, to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Ephesians 4, 8, right? Verse 8, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Do you know that that comes from Psalm 68, 18? It says, You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men. So check it out. We're hearing about captivity. We're hearing about prison, being released. Check it out. Jesus says, I have come as a ransom for many. Right? He ransomed his life so that we could have freedom, eternal life. He paid for our sins. So I'm looking at this. Ransom, captivity. It almost sounds like a hostage situation. Right? Seriously, if you put it all together, I'm going to make sense of it. Acts 2.31, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle Peter preaching at Pentecost. He says this, seeing what was to come, he, meaning David in Psalm 16, spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades or the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Did the Lord go to Hades? If he did, what did he do there? And what is Hades? Last one, Revelation 5, 3, but no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. Why is under the earth differentiated from on the earth. If we could put up the first slide. Slide number one. Excellent. This is an artist's rendition of the earth. Now I'm going to show you a cross-section of how geologists look at the earth. So I hope you had your coffee or your vitamin B complex because we're going to be doing a little math and science here. So this is um, based on what we read in the scripture. If this is the earth, this is the crust. Now, I would have made these two compartments a lot smaller because there's a lot of depth to the earth, okay? If in Luke 16, I taught the rich man and Lazarus, and what we did was pre-cross, we talked about where people go when they die. Well, we could see their body, it's lifeless, it's dead. But where do they go? Where does their soul go? And... Remember, the rich man, this is very important. The rich man was in torment. He wasn't in torment because he was rich. Let's make that clear. God's not a 1% versus a 99%. That's not him, okay? That's us in the world. Uh, but the rich man was, you know, he just was concerned about himself, lived a self-centered life, didn't give any consideration to God. So he ends up over here. It's hot, it's dry, it's arid. And there's a gulf this, by this gray means there's some chasm, there's some separation, and over here is really a nice place. Abraham was there, uh, Lazarus was there, and you know the rich man was kind of talking to them. They were able to hear him, but he was suffering and they weren't. In the center of the earth, it's actually pretty hot. So what, what, what went on here? I don't know. Maybe God used really good insulation and a mini split to cool it down. Not sure. You're supposed to laugh at that. 
<laughs> and here's the, here's the, uh, you know, the chasm. Now, this is uh, what we would understand as the bottomless pit, and I'm going to talk about that as well. What Jesus did is he came to this section, somewhere between the crucifixion and the resurrection, and he led the captives free. If we could go to the next slide. I want to read to you, before we do that one, Revelation 20, 13 through 15. It says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Now this is later, this the judgment, the great white throne judgment. All souls will have an accounting before God. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, that red compartment, were delivered up, delivered up the dead who were, with, were in them, and they were judged, and each one to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there's going to be this final judgment with the lake of fire. And Hades, the bad part of Hades, where people didn't die in faith, where they rejected God's plan of salvation, the sea is going to give that up. And that's going to end up in the lake of fire for eternity. So, Pastor Joe, why is there an eternal destination for the wicked and a temporary? Well, it's almost like a, when somebody's charged for murder and they're in the local police lockup. The police don't determine guilt or innocent. They just charge. Eventually, that person or is released and goes to see a judge. And if, through the judge and jury, they're convicted, they go to the big house. You know, they go to the state pen. And that's where they are for life. So this is almost like a temporary situation that God has, but then God will eventually judge the wicked dead and send them to their final destination. However, Jesus came to free the captive. So if we could go to the one about the earth. I'm going to also express to you that in Revelation 9 and Revelation 20, there's this picture of the abyss where it's literally in Greek, it means a hole in the ground that has no bottom. There's no depth to it. And I'm going to get to that. If you look at the earth, very fascinating, right? You have the crust, the upper mantle, the lower mantle, the outer core, and the inner core. The inner core is roughly, really, seven or eight to 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit. But they say it's a solid iron core. However, scientists are now saying that it's probably more of a gelatinous core. So if iron melts at 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit, then why is this kind of still semi-solid? Because the pressure down here is about 2 to 3 million times the pressure of the Earth's surface. Okay, So when pressure, when you introduce heavy pressure, it interferes with the molecules and the atoms' ability to, to expand. So to go from a solid to a liquid to a gas. So it's kind of holding everything together. Now, on the Earth's surface is gravity, right? Let me just go back for a minute. The abyss. The abyss means without a bottom. What determines, <laughs> what determines bottom and top? Gravity. In other words, you're walking and your feet are planted on the ground and the blood, you know, the heart's trying to pump everything to keep it up because gravity keeps pulling everything down. Except gravity, there is no gravity in space. And there is no up and down in space. As a matter of fact, there's no gravity, or let me, let me back that up, retract that for a minute. When uh, deep sea fishermen, people go and they do diving, as they go further down, there's a phenomenon that could cause real problems for them. 
it's dark and the pressure starts to increase. So sometimes divers, when they think they're swimming to the top, they're swimming to the bottom because there's less of that concept of bottom because of the pressure. Where else is there no top and bottom? Center of the earth. Isn't that interesting? So basically, whether you're in space or you're at the center of the earth, no matter how you orient yourself, there is no top and bottom. So this idea of the bottomless pit really makes a lot of sense because in Revelation, in this horrible time that hopefully nobody here is, for, uh, is around for, when the abyss opens up wherever it is on the planet, the demons come out and they start to wreak havoc on the planet, uh, surface of the earth. So it does appear, it does appear, and if we look at science, we can actually say, and, and God doesn't have to, he can be outside of the physical properties. There's something that keeps this demonic realm in the center, and then it, at the opportune time in Revelation, it's, the earth is opened up and they actually come up to the top. So, but what's really important here is really not all that. I mean, I, I threw a lot in at once. What's really important is what Jesus did. When Jesus died on the cross and his body was left there and eventually was buried in the cave, the scriptures are clear. He went and descended into the lower parts of the earth to free those who died in faith. Remember, Jesus died for the sins of the past, present, and the future. A lot of people ask me, well, how does that play out? Very simply, there was a holding place, a very comfortable place for the saints who died in faith. And when, faith, and when the Lord died for their sins, then he was able to release them. So basically, hostage situation that we talked about, Satan took hostages. He tempted man. The earth, the mankind fell. Sin entered the world. Death entered the world. And they could not be, people could not be in fellowship with God ever unless the sin issue was dealt with. So what Jesus did was, and we see this in Matthew 12, Jesus bound the strong man who kept humankind uh, in, in bondage to their sin. He bound the strong man. He was able to smash through his defenses. He opened the prison house and he let those saints free. Now, what happens to a believer today when you die? Well, the Bible is very clear. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.8, absent, absent, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's that simple because he's already died, and that was a past event that took place. So let me just kind of wrap this up for you. Why did I go into this? Well, number one, there is a lot of curiosity about the center of the earth. And a lot of, actually mostly horror movies were made about people that go down into the earth. And I really wonder if they get some of it from scripture. You know, I see a lot of science fiction movies and I'm like, you know, the Bible was written a long time before that guy went into that conjecture. So it is conjecture. It is based on fact. We don't know exactly how it happens. But the first reason why I did this is because of all the curiosity about this portion of scripture, even though it's parenthetical. Number two there's an unscriptural doctrine, and I'm sure some of you have come from these types of churches where it says that Jesus, after he died on the cross, suffered in hell. He didn't suffer in hell. The hell couldn't hold him. Remember, he's the son of God. That's ridiculous. He suffered in hell, and then he, it's just all convoluted. The truth is, hell and death have no power over him. As a matter of fact, he gave up his spirit and separated his body from spirit on the cross. And three, again, sinners saved by grace today go straight to heaven and there's no such thing as purgatory. So all this stuff about the flames and, you know, people write stuff. And I think purgatory came from one of the Maccabean books. However, was it in 1 Maccabees, the, the author says, at this time there were no prophets at this time in history. So he's basically saying, I'm not a prophet. 
So it's some person's understanding. No such thing as purgatory. When you die, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We good on that? <laughs> it, it's, it's a lot. So if you, if you have any questions, please write them down and ask me. Okay, verse 11. Let's go back to Ephesians 4, verse 11. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And this is where we'll end for today. Um, the spiritual gifts are mentioned here, few of them, but they're also mentioned, again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and Romans 12. So there's, I think, well over 20 or 30, and maybe there's some that aren't even expressed that God has, that people have, and it's an awesome thing when you have it. So the first one is apostles. Apostles were divinely appointed. The criteria was have seen the risen Christ. There was uh, some different criteria that the apostles had to meet to have that. The apostle Paul was an apostle out of due time. He saw the risen Christ. Uh, he communed with him on the road to Damascus. Um, the apostles were instrumental in helping build the foundation of the early church. 2,000 years later, people call themselves apostles, but in the strictest interpretation, there are no apostles today. Two, prophets. Prophets tell God's word as God tells them and they write it down or in addition to telling God's word, he, they forth tell God's word. They speak about future events that are going to come to pass. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 tells us this. And we covered Hebrews when we went into it. God who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Do people have words of prophecy? Yes. I believe, Calvary believes, we're kind of in the middle of the road. We do believe that there are gifts for the Spirit today. Cessationalists don't. Sometimes hyper-Calvinists don't. But then that really brings in a lot of problems when you look at some of these gifts. Okay? Three, evangelists. Um, evangelists help to win souls and to add to the body of Christ. So if the apostles build on the foundation of Christ, which we covered in the first few chapters, with Jesus as the, as the cornerstone, then the evangel evangelists um, build on the foundation, and the edifice just keeps getting built with more believers. We're like living stones, as Peter says, in this structure of God's house. Um, we all have the ministry of reconciliation, and we all have the ability to evangelize, I believe, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. So evangelists, winning souls to Christ. Pastors, this word is the same word for shepherd. His job is to tend or to administrate in the local assembly using God's word as its constitution. A lot of talk today in our culture about the constitution and judges and, and how things keep getting changed. But the truth is, for us, our constitution is God's word, greater than any constitution made up by man. If we're using an illustration, the pastors kind of do maintenance on the house, you know, fix things up and make sure that when the Lord comes, everything is the way he would like it. Pastors, I believe, today need to be generalists. They need to do a lot of different things. And the last one is teachers. They take what's already been established in God's word and make it digestible. They assimilate it into a person's spiritual life. So just like you have uh, your professions, maybe every year you go for retraining to keep you fresh in your field, what a teacher does when they teach the word of God is they keep our spiritual life up to par. We're supposed to be listening, receiving, and assimilating it into our life. Right? And there's a whole lot of other ones. But, oh, listen, I threw a lot at you this morning. 
Uh, again, ask questions. There's a lot here. Um, you know, God's word, we shouldn't be afraid to, to espouse what God's word is. I actually have my science teacher in the back, and uh, I went through a lot of this stuff with him as well. I, I studied it, and I'm like, duh, duh. he's like, yep, yeah, mm, mm, mm. so we're good. So basically, let's continue as we go through the second part of talking, then walking in unity. What we find out is this, let's boil it down, is that God did the heavy lifting in terms of the plan of salvation for us. And this is predicated upon his love for us. Because of his, God's love for us, it drove God to put this plan together because he didn't want to see anybody lost. After saving us, he imparts us, he imparts us with spiritual gifts. Each one of us has one or more spiritual gifts so that we could work on continuing to unify the church and to give glory to God in an increasingly divided world. So people who see a united church maybe a local assembly, they're drawn to it because today you go out into the world, everybody's at each other's throats. There's always something that separates us in the human race, although we're all humans. It's kind of ridiculous, you know? A unified church working together, doing the ministry, leads or lends to the attractiveness of Christ to the unsaved world. This is just not written to the Ephesian Christians. This is written to New Jersey Christians in 2015. So as we go through this, this could have been written last week. That's how fresh it is, and that's how applicable it is. Christians who look at the Bible as something, well, I feel good on Sunday, and that was for the Ephesians, that's dangerous, because that's not what God wants. It's the living word. I've read holy books from hundreds of years ago, and I'm like, I don't know how any of this stuff applies. But God's word is always fresh because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So all we have to do is to ask ourselves a question as we go through the series. What is my role in all this? Because we all have a role. It's just a matter of whether we've realized our role, realized our spiritual gifts, and if we're being obedient to the Lord to actually use it for the purposes that he set forth. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.